Hey, what's happening? Welcome back to another episode of the Shortest Path podcast. Today, we're joined by Vishal Kumar, who is the cultural data scientist, and he's also the CEO and co-founder of Alice Camera, an innovative AI camera for creators. In this episode, we start off the conversation just talking about what exactly it means to be a cultural data scientist before delving into the world of creativity and seeing the connections and how data science can be used in that arena. We also talk about his journey from studying at the LSE to becoming a data scientist at Sotheby's to then venturing into the world of entrepreneurship. He goes into detail about his experience at Entrepreneurs First, which as many of you may know, is the world leading talent accelerator. Great conversation and definitely one to listen to especially if you're thinking about applying for the program now in his experience although he didn't get past the IC stage he still was able to build a startup and get a grant from Innovate UK of £200,000 we also talk about balancing technology and also the need for human touch you know so talking about the concerns of dilution of human touch when it comes to art and creativity and also how data and AI what can be done to essentially solve some of the world's problems so again more more food for thought as well as more topics um in this area so without saying too much let's get to the show so when i was doing my research i saw that you coined the term cultural data scientist now firstly what does that mean and secondly what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> right. So the way I explain that is, you know, you have lawyers. Yeah. And you have accountants, right? So you have a tax lawyer. Mm. You have a sports lawyer. You have a lawyer for music. You have a music lawyer. You have people, death lawyer. And same with accountancy as well. You would have people who are accountants for a particular area. When I was a data scientist, I am a data scientist, but I was doing it in the art market and in the cultural space. So I was like, okay, can I use this opportunity to position myself in an interesting way? And without sort of explaining to people, I'm a data scientist in the art market or I'm a data scientist in the cultural creative sector. I was just like, what if we just do cultural data scientists? It cuts the chase, it gets to the point, um, it's much more transferable. And then I started to roll with it and people started to refer to me as a cultural data scientist. And I wrote a whole blog post around... um, the logic behind doing that and yeah stuck with it ever since that's amazing because the word cultural it can mean so many different things and you mentioned in particular art so how do you feel so that you could have called yourself like an art data scientist for example mm-hmm. but what other elements of culture do you look into other than just art yeah so culture is a quite loaded term actually mm-hmm. you know you've got people from the business sector talking about culture which is more like business culture. More traditionally, you have people from the creative industries talk about art and culture. Then you have terms like the cultural industries or the creative and cultural industries, which is what the UN and some other big, big governing bodies use to, as an umbrella term to capture that, that, that particular industry. So fundamentally, a culture is a way in which a segment of humans from different parts of the world or, or different towns. You can have cultures very, you know, on a small sort of town, a small place. Cultures really can be grounded in, in place, mm-hmm. can be grounded in time. You can have a particular culture across time. So 
yeah, cultures across different dimensions, but fundamentally, fundamentally, it's human. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't try to get too much into the debate around the semantics and the meta meaning of culture because you've got anthropologists that have been uh, doing cultural studies for a really long time. So, yeah, it's not it's not a silver bullet. It's not a perfect term, but when I when I talk about me being a cultural data scientist, it's very much applied to the creative and cultural industries. But that doesn't mean that there can't be another cultural data scientist who's doing something about um, culture culture in the West Indies mm-hmm. or um, Indian you know Indian culture or something like that. So I think it's an open and flexible term. Because what kind of questions do you answer? In fact, let me take a step back. When did you get interested in putting together? being a data scientist with elements of different cultures? Yeah, so actually, it, I want to go all the way back to me studying my A-levels at school. Um, I did maths, economics, geography, and fine art. Wait, what? Yeah, very, very broad mix. Yeah. And at the time, I've always been interested in cities, right? So I've always been interested in cities as places where culture happens, where innovation happens, where exchange happens. And so when I was doing my A-levels when I was sort of 16, 17, I had this idea of like studying architecture because mm-hmm. it was like the combination of like cities and design and geometry and mathematics and art. Um, and all of the art, like if you go back through my sketchbooks, all of the art that I, I have is buildings. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do at university, I had a mentor at the time and I was speaking through like different career paths. And I was, I was like, I've got this idea of maybe studying architecture. And long story short, he was like, do you have any connections in the industry? Does anyone in your family work in architecture? And I was like, no and no. And he's like, don't do it. <laughs> because an architecture degree is seven years long. Mm. If you want to do it, the best place in, in the UK is probably the Bartlett uh, at UCL. I ended up actually doing my master's at the Bartlett, which I'll talk about later. Um, if you're going to do that in London, seven years on basically no salary, and you don't have an outcome from the end of it, it's going to be a tough one. At the same time, I was always interested in enterprise. And so um, I wanted to study something at university. So I ended up going to LSE. Mm-hmm. And I did uh, applied economics, a mixture of like economics and geography, uh, what we call sort of spatial economics, urban economics. So it's still related to cities. And then when I was there... I used to go to uh, museums all the time when I was at uni. I lived in Holborn, where my halls were. So I'd go to the National Gallery, I'd go to the Tate Modern, the Tate Britain, all these uh, cultural uh, buildings. And even when I was at school, we used to go to trips to Paris and to Barcelona. I was fascinated by uh, the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. In Paris as well, you see so many unbelievable bits of inspiration that stuck with me. So throughout my time at LSE, um, I always had this, I would say, interest that was on the side that I didn't immediately pursue. So then fast forward, you've done your degree, you're now looking for jobs. All my mates were going into banking, management consultancy, um, finance. So then I was like, you know, peer pressure when you're, when you're at uni, you're like, okay, maybe I should go into, 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 that, into banking. And so I, I kind of flirted with the idea of going into private banking um, which is essentially managing wealthy people's money. And I did an internship I- across um, India, in Delhi, and uh, it, was in a, it was in a family office in Delhi. Nice. 
And how was that? That was great. I mean, but what I realized when I was there is so I was this guy from London who studied economics and um, they always kind of wanted my perspective. And so we went out to a, um, a meeting to, to meet to see to see one of the clients. And I think it was 2000. I think it was 2013, 14, uh, just after the financial crisis, mm -hmm. the Fed started to taper back on all the quantitative easing. And that had a really detrimental effect on emerging market currencies. So the rupee against the dollar devalued from like 80 rupees to, to $1 to like 120, like basically over a fortnight. Yeah. And everyone was panicking. And so I got invited to this meeting. We went to this guy's house, right? And you walk in through the gates, you go in, marble floors, and you look around and you're like, wow, like, there's art on, on the walls, you know, there, there's, 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 there's plants, there's all this like um, amazing interior design. So we talk about interest rates, and we talk about what's happening with the Fed. But I realized, I'm like, at the end of the meeting, I was like, sir, like, where does your interest in all this, this art come from? And he's like, look, it's not me, it's my wife, it's my children. Um, his children studied in, I think, Oxford, Cambridge, something like that, like, um, and it got me thinking that actually, if this is just one guy in India who has a house and all this stuff, what about all the other people around the world? Um, and when you start to think about that, you start to think that actually with people of a certain caliber, interest rates is not something, they do think about it, but they, they start to think about other things. And um, there's a reason why people collect. There's a reason why people buy Rolex, Rolexes and art. And it sounds, it sounds crazy to say, you know, when you're thinking about things like cost of living and all this other stuff that's going on, but it's a fact of human life and it has been for centuries. And so my first job, sorry, then, then I was like, okay, there is something here with finance, commerce, and the, the art industry that I want to explore. I actually came across this masters and it was called art business. And there was one module called art finance and investment. I was like, okay, this is interesting. Um, I've just done this whole thing in, in private banking and I have an interest in, in economics. Let's try to explore this. And I did the masters and eight months into the masters, so around April, usually start in September, around so April, May, um, there was a job opening at Sotheby's auction house as a data analyst and I applied to it and I got it and I then had to convince the education institute that I can I work full-time and do my master's dissertation at the same time mm -hmm. never really been done before so it was quite a lot of difficult conversation at the time but anyway I got this job at Sotheby's amazing job um kind of like almost like a dream job because it's a very it's a very interesting institution it's been around for 300 years almost uh when it was on the stock market before the pandemic it was the oldest company on the new york stock exchange Deep, re deeply rooted in history and i was like a data analyst at sotheby's that's that's a cool thing yeah and it's also quite surprising because you wouldn't expect such an old institution to be forward thinking when it comes to data analytics you know yeah absolutely and um I managed to actually craft a really interesting career when I was there. And so I was, my job at, at Sotheby's, that, the data analyst role was to work inside of business development. And I had, my main job was to basically win business. Uh, 
using proposals and different business development techniques. Um, and at that stage, it was essentially Sotheby's versus Christie's. You know, when, it's like... When you're talking about clients, sorry, mm-hmm. are you talking about um, private collections? Those people as clients. So you want to be able to be able to sell their stuff? Yeah, so we had a threshold. So my team would only work on individual paintings or lots over £5 million pounds or $10 million dollars or collections over 20 million pounds, 30 million dollars. Otherwise, all the specialists that work at Sotheby's had to do their own business development. They had to do their own schmoozing, they had to do their own business development. But if they wanted a bit more firepower, they would come to us and we would put together a proposal, some analytics, uh, an argument. And at that stage, when you're talking about works at at that level, there's only two places you can go, Sotheby's or Christie's. Mm -hmm. It's basically Lionel Messi's Barcelona versus Cristiano Ronaldo's Real Madrid at that stage. And um, obviously it comes down to the deal. Like if you've got a blue period Picasso, which there's probably only 20 in the world and you're looking to sell it, you have way more bargaining power. Um, And just quickly, the business model of auction houses is that they never buy the work. They broker the deal Mm -hmm. in in an auction setting. So they take a commission from the buyer and from the seller. When you've got very rare work, you can, as a seller, you can drive down that commission. Sometimes the auction house might even incentivize you to sell with them. And anyway, my job throughout all of this is I was doing proposals for London. I was helping out the team in Paris, Geneva, and Hong Kong um, on these really high ticket items, really. And so I would do analytics. I would like understand what's the impressionist market doing at the moment versus the contemporary market. And by the way, I was across different markets. I was looking at impressionist, contemporary, old master paintings, diamonds, classic cars, classic classic watches, a whole range of things. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to do like very quick turnaround analytics on these different markets. Um, Sotheby's had a lot of proprietary data. And so as I was doing this, it was a very niche thing. I was like kind of the only person doing this. Um, And there was this whole like data visualization, data science thing emerging. Uh, And I used to go to loads of meetups. I had way more energy when I was sort of like 22, 23, 24. And I'd go to all these meetups in London. I'd be like, oh, wow, this data visualization thing's quite cool. Or this data science thing's quite cool and emerging. I think it was, yeah, it was in my third year at at Sotheby's. Um, Sotheby's was a great time. I'm, you know, I'm still in contact with my boss. I actually played cricket for them last Friday. Oh, nice. Uh, which, is, which is fun. So I'm in touch with them. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a great organization. But for me, it was always a means to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get onto my sort of entrepreneurial desires uh, later. But when I was there, in my third, in my third year working at Sotheby's, uh, I got offered a scholarship. And I applied, to, and we can dig into this a bit more. There was a degree at UCL running called Data Science and Visualization. And I was like, this is cool. Like, I can be a data scientist in the art market Mm -hmm. and I can improve my skill set by taking a part-time master's in research. So it's not a full-time PhD or it's not a full-time master's. Uh, It was spread over five years. I could go in one day a week and I could basically improve my skill set and improve my, my sort of career chances. That was the thinking at the time. And so I got offered a scholarship to do this. So then I said to my boss, I was like, look, I want to get better. I want to get access to data science and data visualization. I've just got accepted onto this master's in research at UCL, at the Bartlett. 
Um, it's a great opportunity, but I'd love to continue working at Sotheby's. And so we found an arrangement mm -hmm. and I was doing my job four days a week. I was studying one day a week. Um, and the, the year after I got, um, I got promoted, well not promoted, I got moved out to New York on a secondment to kind of help uh, the team in New York, especially the, the senior team. They just acquired an AI startup and the AI startup was doing, it was basically doing recommendation stuff before it was cool. So like 2018, 2017. Um, what do you mean by recommendation stuff? So their, their solution was that if you, had, um, if you had something that you were interested in, or let's say you had a painting uh, or a work of art by Banksy in your collection, mm -hmm. you could drop the image into their system and they would find different works of art that look that are similar to that. So it's this sort of recommendation algorithm, like, or you can say, I like this, um, I like this painting, or I like this style, and it will come up with some others, it'll That's recommend right. some others. So it's like visual recommendation system. And so Sotheby's just acquired the startup. It was about a team of like six or eight people. Um, and I was moved out to New York. What was the rationale for them buying it? Uh, so many. Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know too much, but if I was to guess, I would say that it'd be a mixture of using the tech and they, they are still using that tech in their offering. Um, but also at the time, Sotheby's was a public listed company. So it could have been a strategic play. I don't know if people listening remember, but at the time, uh, 2016, 17, 18 was a bull market and there was a lot of M&A activity happening. And I think Sotheby's uh, looked to acquire that company uh, for, for tactical reasons. But the year before, Christie's, the, the arch enemy, had also acquired um, a company. So there was a lot of stuff happening and um, that secondment was, was sort of set in stone for, for about... 10 months and the reason for that was because I had this like gap between when I finished my module mm. to when I started back in September and um, to, to, to start the next year and so when I was when I was there I was always thinking oh you know should I stay a bit longer should I not but it got to the stage where I was in my getting towards the end and I was like I can't be like in London part-time doing a master's, then in New York 10 months, then coming back and trying to finish a master's. And I was, I think I was about, I think I was 25, 26 at that time. And there was, and I saw all of this AI activity sort of starting to kick off. When you say you can't do it, is that because you just felt exhausted or like drained? Like what do you mean by you, when you said you could, you couldn't do it? I think like, I think what I've learned by, doing multiple things at once is actually that gets to a stage where you can't be juggling five things and be executing on all of them. And so I was like, I've got this scholarship. I've got this opportunity to do this degree. Let me just like do it. And um, I, I'm going to say something a bit contradictory, but at the same time, I've always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to get into entrepreneurship or at least want to use the energy that I still had yeah. to explore entrepreneurship. And I had, you know, there was a few different mentors hanging around and it might, it might it's different for different people for different reasons. But usually I would suggest if you want to get into entrepreneurship, it's better to do it when um, you have less commitments, you have less opportunity cost because... Um, that's not to say people who are older can, cannot, can't start businesses or, or do businesses. Um, 
but it's harder. The opportunity cost is harder. And so I felt at the time that I was like, I've been at Sotheby's and whilst I was there, they gave me a lot of free reign actually to talk about my work. Um, and this is where I started to build my actual, a name for myself as a cultural data scientist. At the time, uh, I was appearing on podcasts and going and doing public speaking and I was making videos and I built a modest following of, a lot, of around 30,000 followers on social media around me as a data scientist in the art market. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, to be able to go from a data analyst, um, for them to let me study part-time, for me to, I became one of the company's first ever data scientists. And um, I, was able, I was kind of right at the sort of top and I was like, right, I've built an amazing brand for myself. I've got all these followers. People know me for, for being a data scientist in the art market. This seems like a good time to now go and leverage that. And so that, that same autumn, I applied for Entrepreneur First. And I got accepted onto Entrepreneur First. And this is where I was like, okay, now, now's your ticket. Do you, want to, do you want to take it or you don't want to take it? And so... Um, I took it. I was like, right, I want to go on this. I want to go on this thing. I, I heard from a few other friends that, um, uh, you know, that Entrepreneur First was a good place to, to go. And that's where I met you, Yemi, obviously. Um, but EF, that, that, at that moment, I was kind of like, it's when I had all those things around, then I was like, I can't be doing all of this. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So then I was, they got into Entrepreneur First. Um, had you, were you still working at Sotheby's at the time? No, I, I, I decided to, to, to leave and do my master's, um, continue to do one module, but I I'd applied for EF around the same time. Okay. Because I think the applications for April had opened up in September hmm. uh, and I applied for it. So you did you quit to join EF? Or like, no, 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 no. Okay, I, I so quit you quit to do to the master's. Continue to do the master's. Yeah. And, and then you said, let me just do this program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no, I calculated, I calculated how many modules do I have left? Yeah. And I still had two more years. And so I did that, I did that winter module from mm. September to December, but I skipped the whole of 2019. Got it. I, I told UCL, I was like, I'm not doing any modules 2019. I want to do this. Uh, only because I got accepted onto EF. Uh, there was, there, yeah, there was a few people that, that encouraged me to apply. Mm. They were like, oh, you've just come back from New York. There's this new thing, uh, bloody blah, blah, like have a look. And it was, my application to EF was a bit of a hedging my bets. Like I didn't really think I'd get in. I was yeah. like, I'd apply, I'll get my, you know, I'll get my foot through the door. And then when I'm ready, maybe in the summer, I'll apply again, you know, because a lot of people who go to EF apply two times or three times. Mm. So yeah, it was, it, it's a little bit contradictory from what I said before, but it was, it was one of those things. I think whenever you have a, when you have an opportunity, it's always important to really assess if it's a good one. Mm. That, takes, that takes a lot of skill to actually assess if an opportunity is a good one. Once you've made a judgment that is a good one, you need to take it. How did you assess that this was a good one for you then? Oh, you know, I'd spoken to about four or five people that had gone on EF mm. and a lot of them told me it, it was the one. But even, it's interesting because you could have, you could have stayed at Sotheby's, right? Mm -hmm. Continue to build your brand up, especially as you're doing your masters. And that could have led to other opportunities, whether it be starting your own like consultancy to work with other art houses and other areas in the whole like art industry or starting a business that's, I don't know, some compl completely different or working for another company. So how did you weigh up between that versus doing EF? 
interestingly, I still do quite a lot of consultancy. On okay, the side. <laughs> so, so you weren't giving that so, up. <laughs> so actually, the thing that the thing that got me through 2019 and 2020 was the fact that I was doing data science, cultural data science consultancy on the side. Got it. And my day rate was was quite high, and it was it was it was keeping you know it was keeping me it was getting some income in. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, I got to that stage where I had a really good network, and I was like. I don't need to be wearing a suit and tie every day coming in Monday to Friday. Uh, at least right now, um, you know, I might want to do that when I'm 50 or whatever, but uh, at right now, I've got this window of opportunity to explore entrepreneurship when I'm 26. Um, let's give it a go. And EF was a really great, um, I, would, I would say pretty much the only option I would have taken mm-hmm. Um if you if I had different options at the time, um, so go on to EF. It was uh, it was it was really great. Um, there's definitely pros and cons. Uh, don't think we need to go into that necessarily. <laughs> but um, met so when I was going to EF, I was I was very clear with what I wanted to get out of it. I yeah. was like, okay, I'm this cultural data scientist. I've got followers. People know me. Um, I've worked in the art market. I've got this like domain expertise in the cultural and creative industries and I was doing some consultancy as well and I'm very interested in data science and uh, this like cusp of AI and machine learning that was really just starting to happen um, in 2018 2019 arguably it was happening before but I think that was a good time for, for, for me and when I was there I was like okay I don't want to be doing something that's not within that within that interest. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing food delivery. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, don't want to be yeah. doing uh, insurance tech. Like I want to be doing technology for culture and creativity in some capacity. And so the first, the first team, so the, with EF, you, you try to form teams and you break up and you try to find new people. The first team I got involved with was a sort of computer vision city application thing. Oh, what was it again? We're trying to do smart cameras in like city applications. Ah, okay, 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 okay. And okay. then, you know, after like four weeks, I was sort of like, I was going back home and like explaining to my girlfriend that I was working on it. And she was like, Vish, this is not you. Like this, what you're trying to, trying to sell me is like not you sort of thing. And then, you know, when you sort of like take a step back and then you, you sort of, you know, you're st- sitting, st- sitting in a park thinking about things. You're like, yeah, this is not me. I'm just selling myself a dream. Yeah, this is yeah. not me. And so you need to be honest with yourself. And so then the next day I, I broke up, I, I said to, I said to the, the, the person I, I formed with, like, look, this is not what I want to be doing. Let's just call it quits. And by that time, um, so in EF, you have 12 weeks to form an idea. We were, I, I, I was, you know, I used up six weeks, basically. So then I was like, at that time, I was like, oh, maybe this is not for me, you know? Got six weeks left, I have to find an idea. Maybe I should just go back to doing the art consultancy stuff. Um, but was like, look, you've got on this thing. Everyone here is smart. Everyone here wants to build a business. Everyone here's got the willpower to see it through. Let's just roll the dice one more time. And uh, that's where I met Liam, actually. And really interesting story. So basically, both me and Liam are on the bench, um, so to speak. And... Uh, <laughs> So Liam, Liam's a very interesting guy. He's like super tall, um, quite shy, but very, very s- smart. Liam also comes from the creative industries. Like he did his whole PhD in media and arts technology. 
um, and is just like a world-class engineer in terms of building firmware and software for embedded computing. Uh, but he also had uh, a deep interest in photography and he knows a lot about vintage cameras and vintage um, uh, lenses and that sort of stuff. And so one part of the story I didn't mention before is that you know when I was operating as this cultural data scientist in the art market, I was using cameras. I was using, um, I was sitting like this in front of um, video sets. Uh, I understood a bit about cameras. The only reason I cared about cameras was because I wanted to translate a message across video to people. And I noticed that the content, the sort of creator economy was also bubbling at that time as well. And so Liam wrote a, a one-page PDF when both of us were on the bench. And he was like, Vish, I've got a proposal. And I was like, okay, I've been doing proposals for the last five years. Let's hear <laughs> yours. And his proposal was something along the lines of, you are a data scientist in the creative sector. You've got followers on social media. You understand the creator economy and where things are going. I have this deep hardware exper uh, expertise and I know how to build software for hardware. And I also have this passion for photography. For, so let's get together and think about this new generation camera that takes advantage of AI on device, on the edge, and is built entirely from scratch for content creators. And I was like, bro, are you mad? <laughs> like, I was like are, you, are you like, are you crazy? Like, a camera? Yeah. Because I was never, like, when I was at Sotheby's or, you know, when I was... Um, going through my career, I never thought that I'd be building a camera mm. or at least um, something for, you know, something like that. I knew that I wanted to be building tools and AI-enabled tools for creatives and creators and, and the cultural space. But I never would have thought that that incarnation would be a camera. Um, and so, obviously, I had to de-risk some of that decision-making. So I had to be like, let's put together a camera and see if we can like make it work sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so really quickly, we rapidly iterated. We had some, um, I actually have a few design skills as well. So like I know, I know my way around web design and uh, Adobe Illustrator and that sort of stuff. So we put together some like rough designs and uh, we used some off the shelf components. I remember it being a Google Coral um, processor board and some cameras. And Liam could like literally within a matter of days, demonstrate that wow. he could do this. Wow. And I was like, okay. Um, so like, so then we, unfortunately, so we, when you, when we got to week 12 at Entrepreneur First, you have to pitch to investment committee. Basically, Entrepreneur First, if you draw a quadrant of like <laughs> B2B at the top and B2C on the, on the Y axis, and then software and hardware on the X axis, Entrepreneur First is all about B2B software. Yep. We were like B2C hardware. So we're like in the wrong quadrant completely. And the other thing I said to Liam when we came up with the idea, I was like, if we're going to do this, no matter if we get funded or not get funded on Entrepreneur First, are you committed to this? Like, mm. Are we going to take this to, to, the, to, to market? Because even when you do some quick back of, the, back of the envelope calculations, you can very quickly determine that this is a pretty big potential idea mm -hmm. um and we you know we we did other things to de-risk it it wasn't just technical de-risking we actually went and interviewed 100 people like we spoke to 100 people face to face and we asked them like when do you use your phone 
And why do you use a phone? When do you use a camera? In what different situations? There's a reason why Dream Factory and places like this use cameras to, to record content. Um, so we had to like understand what the pain point was. Uh, we, we, we didn't just want to be two guys in a garage building a camera sort of thing. Yeah. We had to like go and speak to people and understand like why they're using cameras, for what situations, uh, what, are the, what are the motivations. And so we did that research alongside the technical. And we got to week 12, we pitched it to IC and obviously, honestly, it flopped sort of thing. Uh, actually, before that, we came up with the, the name Alice. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I can talk about that like, just, for, just go, shortly. Go, 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 go. So, like, so me and Liam are building this camera this AI accelerated computational camera, this new generation camera for content creators. And so I'm going to an art opening with my, my old friend, Carolina from Sotheby's, who I used to sit opposite for like four years. And Carolina is, um, she's Italian, she studied English, she does uh, poetry and creative writing. And so we're walking down the street in Marlebone to go to this, um, uh, art opening and I'm sort of explaining to Carolina I'm like Carolina we're working on this uh, AI accelerated computational camera and she's like Vish what the fuck does that mean <laughs> sort of the, uh, that's non-PC but like, she's like what does that mean yeah like AI bloody blah, blah like I don't even know what that means sort of thing um so I was like you know we, we're building a camera it's a computational camera but we're using AI she's like look you need a better name it needs to be snappier people need to get it so then I was like, have you got any suggestions? On, I swear to God, three seconds, she was like, what about Alice? Mm. You know, AI, Excel, blah, blah, Alice. Alice through the looking glass. It's memorable. People can associate with it. And so that's where, that's where um, it kind of came from. And It was also a good coincidence as well. Very good coincidence. Yeah, yeah very good coincidence. Uh, because when we went to IC... Um, Alice Bentink is one of the, um, you know, one of the owners of, of EF. So it, that was, I, when I told Liam that the day after, <laughs> he was having like a full English breakfast and I was like, Liam, we've got a name for the camera, you know, yeah. Alice. And it was, I think it was. I, think I remember, it was, I remember, I remember. Yeah. I remember being in the, like, the workspace and then you're like, yeah, the name's Alice, Alice through looking glass. I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> it's, it is Michelle's like last shot attempt. To yeah, make sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like trying to get the three hoops, like really going for it. But you got it. You, the thing, this is, this is what I come down to. Like, you got to stick with stuff. Like, you got to really test it out. You can't, can't just keep chopping and changing and, and hoping for the best. Like, if you got something and you think it makes sense, you got to find a story and a narrative that you, a compelling story and narrative that you can build around that thing mm. that makes sense. It comes back to the cultural data science thing. It's an, all it is is a name. Yeah. It's semantics. But actually, what I've done is built a whole story around what it means, why it's useful. And that's, that's, the, that's the same with any innovation. It's the same with Alice Camera. It's, it's a name that captures what we're trying to do. Uh, the vision, the values, and everything else. And so, yeah, it was a difficult one pitching, I, pitching Alice Camera to Alice in IC. And I think the feedback was that they really liked us as people. They, 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 they really liked that we had uh, both from the creative industries, both technical, but they just thought that building an AI-enabled hardware B2C camera was a long, long shot. Mm. Um, so, you know, we didn't let that get to us and we were like, we can still take this somewhere. And uh, at the time, you know, I think both, it was a bit difficult because both of us were still doing like some consultancy stuff to keep things afloat, but we're still doing some customer research. 
And then Vic, my brother, was leaving his job at JP Morgan. And we managed to get him involved as well as um, an, a third, third co-founder, an equal co-founder. And so Vic really helped out more on the operation side, on the finance side. And we got to a stage where we put in an innovation, uh, Innovate UK grant. And arguably, we might have dodged a bullet because we got £200,000 of, of funding mm. uh, six to eight months after EF without giving any, way, any equity away. Um, which is more than double what they what they offer. So between the time of getting rejected from IC and raising the Innovate UK grant, were you also speaking to other investors or was it a case of let's wait a little bit, let's define the idea a bit more yeah. and therefore go ahead and try again? Yeah, we weren't speaking to investors. Uh, we actually had, um, once we were rejected, we were like, okay, we need somewhere to like incubate this thing. And so we applied to UCL Innovation Enterprise mm -hmm. and we got onto that and they gave us free office space. Um, we spent a whole, I think about six months in total going through that uh, accelerator. It was great. Uh, it was the right thing at the right time for us. Yeah. Um, got a lot of free legal advice, got f like uh, free office space, that sort of thing. And yeah, then then through that, we had a, someone from UCL Innovation help us with the Innovate UK application. Got it. And they were like, you know, based on where you want to go, based on the people you want to hire, based on um, the immediate engineering development that was required, we think 200K is something that is enough, achievable. Um, and so we did the application and we were lucky enough to get it. Mm. That must have been a nice breath of fresh air. Oh my God. Speaking of fresh breath of fresh air, I was in Wales, yeah. in the Brecon Beacons, <laughs> beautiful fresh air when I found out. Mm. So me and my girlfriend were, were hike, like kind of hiking basically for like a few days. And I remember it. I remember just being so relieved because um, yeah, I just got a text from, from Vic saying we got, the, we got the Innovate UK grant. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a nice, it was such a good feeling. I remember it. I remember it now. And I think Aud's got a photo of me um, uh, somewhere like celebrating <laughs> when we got it. <laughs> so the way you were doing that, because obviously you, like Liam convinced you in the first place around like the need for it, the whole creator economy. And then you yourself, you said originally you didn't see yourself doing something like this. So at that point, when you were building it, how were you convincing yourself that you were the right person to build a company such as this? Great question. Um, I think fundamentally, uh, if you are crazy enough to believe that you can go through an entrepreneurship program mm. and try to build it doesn't have to be an AI camera. It could be any startup from scratch, take it to the market and make a significant impact on the world, make a significant impact on the products and services available to people, actually solve people's problems. You've got to back yourself. Yeah. Like regardless, you've got to back yourself. And in almost, if I, if I rewind and I look at the different paths that I've taken, whether it was me going to LSE and then going to Sotheby's, uh, which was actually, a lot of my mates were going into private banking and I went to the art world. And then going from the art world to entrepreneurship, across all of those different touch points, I've always backed myself mm -hmm. to, to find a way to make it work. And yeah, you've got to do it with a smile on your face. You've got to do it. Um, if you're, we can get into like passion and, and what drives you, but f sometimes people say that, follow your passion is bad advice. 
I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. I don't think it's bad advice. I think you should always have a passion for something. And through this conversation and through everything you, you learn about me online, I'm very passionate about the culture and creative sector. And I want to bring technology to that space. I'm passionate about it. Mm. But at the same time, passion can also lead you down a path that uh, is sort of like delusional. Uh, so you need motivation. You need this intrinsic motivation. You need to get up. You need to you know, iron your shirt and get cracking. And you need to back yourself to do that. So I don't think I ever had doubts that I was the right person to do it. I think that I've always wanted to build a startup and I've always wanted to build tools. And um, I've just backed myself that, yeah, I think this got a good idea. I think I have the ability to lead a team to get this product out. Um, and leadership's quite interesting. I play, I've played a lot of cricket actually growing up, like tons of cricket throughout my whole career. When I was at high school, when I was at university, I've always played cricket. Um, and there's been periods where I've been captain or, or vice captain. But what I love about cricket is that it's a team of 11, sometimes 13, 15 people. And you get, and cricket's great because you have different personalities. I'm a bowler, right? And so I don't like batting. I just like doing my bowling. And when everyone's batting, I want to put my flip-flops on <laughs> and read The Economist or, or like read some newspapers and have a few beers. But everyone, you have diff these different personalities. So I think about my team as like a, almost like a cricket team. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, yeah, you just have to back yourself and you just need to believe that you're the right person. But it does come back from your, what are your passions? Because again, if I was doing a food delivery thing, I think I'd lose, I won't have the passion. Therefore, I won't have the intrinsic motivation. Therefore, I wouldn't be getting up with the same energy to, to execute on it. So it's really important to understand what your passions are and what drives you, what's, what's going to drive you to do something. And for me, clearly, technology for culture and creativity mm. is what drives me. It's interesting because like, when I think of the skills you were using when you were working at Sotheby's or working with other art houses, ultimately, you're using data sciences as a way for them to make more money, right? Mm -hmm. Because the data sets that you're looking at it's passed, sold, and bought, and the rest of it, right? So it's good that that element of, say, the art industry didn't slap it out of you. Yeah. You know, like it didn't over-commercialise and make you feel, for lack of a better word, cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because um, I do wonder, like, with, say, with the Alice camera, and you're focusing on creators, right, and with all the work that's happened with AI, so how have you been able to acquire customers especially with something which is a hardware com hardware company where there's going to be loads of bugs it's going to be very expensive especially if you're the first person that buys it compared to when you benefit from like econ economies of scale and the rest of it so how have you been able to like bring people on board that journey a lot of data and pretty much using quite a lot of techniques that i would use at sotheby's uh just using data-driven business development techniques um at the time, you know, you f we have to, you have to be smart, right? So when we were doing a lot of this um, interviewing people, uh, and by the way, it's not about just being smart because you can be you can kind of game the system, but you've got to have something, you've got to have s enough of a hook to actually get the meeting in the first place. Mm. And we believed that this product, the way we positioned it, between on one end a smartphone, another end a camera, something that's a hybrid in between was enough of a hook to actually land those meetings. And it still is. Yeah. Uh, we've been doing this since back end of 2019, early 2020. And it's still a radical product that 
turns people's heads mm. on the streets of San Francisco and, and, and Los Angeles. And so, yeah, it comes down to, you, you have to have something that can draw people in and into the meeting. So we had that, we had the product. So then you have to have an automated or a system in place where you can like either go through LinkedIn or you go through uh, Instagram. And so it was a lot of just manual, uh, literally. All, people think big data is like the silver bullet to everything. You don't need big data. You need really good small data mm. that is good quality. So if you've got a spreadsheet of 100 people, 100 emails or 500 emails, then you need to calculate, okay, I've got 500 emails that I've, I've collected. What's the conversion going to be? Am I going to land, if I land, you know, if I land, 50 meetings you got a 10% conversion uh, but actually we maybe we should aim for 20 so it was just a mixture of like taking that data-driven approach following up with people with something cool that we had mm. and honestly most of it was just word of mouth so when you find one photographer or creator that really likes it he or she tells their friends you, you bring them in you show them prototypes and that's the way we've been doing it it's just literally word of mouth um, to the point where you can you're literally six degrees away from someone huge yeah and if you think of and this is where cultural data sciences comes into play i did a bit of network science when i was uh, studying and um if you understand society as a network i don't want to go meta with this but like the reason there's a lot of inequality in society is actually because people don't fully appreciate that humans are networked species mm -hmm. There's a reason why people apply to get these awards and stuff is because it comes down to your network. Your network is your net worth. It's very cringy and cliche, but actually um, there's a reason why people send kids to private school and to universities and stuff is the world and society is a networked thing. Culture is networked. And so if you understand that principle, you can start to really think, okay, who are the most important people in the photography camera network? Can I get access to that person? If I can, can they introduce me to two or three other people that are also um, big in the space? And from that, we've turned that into loads of like loads of pre-orders. We've turned that into over 30,000, 40,000 people um, around the Alice Camera brand. We've got press coverage from Wired, Wallpaper, Tech Radar, a bunch of others. Um, so yeah, you just taking thinking as a data scientist in that particular application was very helpful mm. because i was doing all of that whilst liam was like slogging away coding and trying to get this thing to work and then at the same time vic was also doing some sales and and uh managing the operations and making sure things were going smoothly on, on the finances side so yeah i do think that the data science played a really important role actually in 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 acquiring and getting us to where we are. Yeah, yeah. Because I was gonna another question I was gonna ask was just more generally, generally like how data science itself can improve well-being for some of those societal changes, um, societal challenges. Because as you mentioned, people being like feeling more isolated. Then you've got xenophobia. Then you've got like mm. um, obesity to a certain extent. Like just general challenges. And I wonder because data science does the one thing whereby you can analyze and see the data, but it's also the so what. And how does that come into play? Like who takes control of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've thought about this philosophically quite a bit, actually. So, okay, let's compare two or three groups of people. Mm -hmm. So you've got group, a one group person lives in Hackney, right? I'm going to play to a few stereotypes in this example, but you've got people <laughs> who live, got people like, think about your yuppie in, in yeah, Hackney, yeah, yeah. right? 
Then think about uh, someone who lives in the outskirts of London, maybe, you know, somewhere like Romford, Luton, wherever, right? Okay, cool, yeah. And then you've got someone who is maybe from like Harrow, huge South Asian community. Mm -hmm. That geography is important and influential in so many ways that people don't fully appreciate. Elaborate. So if you live in a South Asian community in Harrow yeah. and you come from a South Asian uh, family or whatever, it's more probable that on social media, you are following influencers, people of, from that community. Similarly, if you, come from, go, you know, if you are from Luton, it's more likely that you are following people maybe who like football and you, all of your Instagram feed is full of football memes and football interviews. If you live in Hackney and, and you're a yuppie that works in advertising, it's more likely that you might have, your whole feed is full of like plants and vegan restaurants and stuff like that. What that does is it warps your perception because everything that you're seeing on social media, people are spending hours a day on their phone. Your whole algorithm is catered around that particular society. That has a, and people don't appreciate it's really important to curate your social experience because if you're not cognizant of that, the algorithm will eat you and it will, it will change your perception in such a way that it feeds into these biases. It feeds into xenophobia. It feeds into obesity. It feeds into a whole bunch of things. If you're, if you're just seeing crisps ads on your social media the whole time, obviously you're going to be obese. So I think the reason I would really advocate for things like uh, meditation. I do a lot of headspace and we could talk about that after, but I do tons of headspace to the point where I've done over 12,000 hours on headspace. Wow. I meditate. Uh, when I meditate, I meditate 20 minutes at a time. I don't like to be interrupted and I've done 12,000 hours because I just need to be more present. I need to be more, when I get on my phone, I'm, I need to think, why am I doing this? Let's put it back. I need to think, shit, I'm spending too much time doom scrolling on, on TikTok. Let's put it down. People are not cognizant of these little signals. And if you're not cognizant, very quickly it can take over your, your life and it can make you feel sad. Uh, something that's really annoying me at the moment is um, a lot of newspapers in particular, mainstream media, are feeding into AI being this sort of like nuclear bomb, oh, yeah. doomsday thing. So there was an article on the BBC. Uh, the headline was, AI will destroy humanity, comma, says experts. And you're like, guys, what's the point? Why are you doing that? And then you think about all these other, and Matt Clifford from EF was misquoted in, I think, the Telegraph or the Times for something along the lines of AI is going to take everyone's jobs. The media understand that controversial headlines get clicks yeah. and that's the way they need to survive. So they play these dirty tactics. And I just don't think enough people are present and cognizant of, and critical of that thing. See, I, I'm I not sure. You. I agree with you, right? But on that point, I feel sometimes hysteria can be a good thing because on the point of saying, oh, AI is going to destroy humanity, by making more people aware of what's going on, then that's going to force people in power to make certain changes, right? right? Because I feel the way policy that happens either in the US or the UK it's been overrun by tech corporations who have deep pockets and can actually like pay people to do what they want to do. Right. And even with AI, maybe 
the horse has already bolted from the stables. That is too far gone. We can't catch it. But there's been other instances in the past where let's talk about like social media influencers or the general fake news things. Like these elements where we've tried to combat it, but it happened after damage was done. And now I think with AI, when we're talking about the impersonation of people, like we hear a lot about mm. revenge porn, for example, yeah. right? That's revenge porn in 2023. What about in 2030? Yeah. You know? Vision Pro. Vision all Pro, all of these different yeah. aspects where if we don't have a strong grip on privacy, then I don't know what's going to happen because GDP, yeah. GDPR, for example, as stifling as and as much as it's just made the whole web experience awful in Europe, it's still, we're still in a much better place than they are in America because mm-hmm. a lot of the times, like, um, people will find their images as part of these AI trained models and they never gave any permission for it. But somehow, some way, it's already been caught up in that system. So, I don't know, I feel like hysteria, on the one hand, can be good in a sense that it can make people wake up. But to your point, yeah, don't always show the negative. Show people what the positives that can come out of right. some of these new technologies as well yeah that's a really good point and yeah. um i think that you're you're totally right that waking like slapping people around the face and waking them up to mm. a boogeyman or something you know what what's around the horizon is is an important thing and i don't for a second think that you know people are uh, or society or groups of people are not smart enough to to be critical and assess for themselves but You've there, there. I the point I'm making is that psychologically, there's a lot of evidence to show that the way in which the user experience of social media and smartphones have been curate, uh, curate, uh, created is to keep us addicted, 100%. it's to keep us, um, it's to trick our brains psychologically. And so, I think more and more of that's being surfaced, and more and more people understanding that, and that's great. Uh, but yeah, I think. Uh, there's been a period of time between when the iPhone first came out and now where a lot of people have taken for granted yeah. and don't fully understand some of those psychological tricks that have been played on us. And I think kids should learn about critical thinking. Like, I, like, like they should do- totally criticize or be able to be like, is that photo of the Pope with the Balenciaga thing actually a real thing yeah. or not? Like in the, in the case of that, the mid-journey Balenciaga Pope thing, we should by default, have in the metadata of these images the model that was used to create these things, the year was created, much like when you take a photo. When you take a photo, you know it's iPhone 14 Pro taken on June 5th. Uh, You know, you understand all that metadata. That should be in a mid-journey photo. Why isn't it not in a mid-journey photo? If it is, it will allow people to have a sense of trust, uh, can trust the media that they're digesting, but yeah, I guess I'm just advocating for more critical thinking because, as you say, these tech companies, these big organizations uh, are, ha, have been proven to play psychological tricks on us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Critical yeah. thinking is a key thing. Um, question everything, yes. as they like to say, right? So as you're building out, um, Alice, and like one of the key things, because building a hardware company is tough. There's a lot of risk involved. Um there's a lot of lead times like dealing with manufacturers. It's a it's a big and hard undertaking. So how did you keep yourself, I guess, motivated on that journey? Because mm-hmm. we're in 2023 now and you said this started in 2019. Yeah. So you went through COVID, like all the different aspects. Like how what was your driving, like driving motivation that kept you going? And on top of that, was there 
a particular setback or failure which made you reconsider this whole journey? Yeah. So what kept me going? Uh, well, so firstly, hardware is hard, mm. um, but software soft. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I always like to get that out. <laughs> but th- th- what I mean by that is that with, with software, it can, it can fall apart really quickly. Um, a lot of competitors can quickly emerge. And we're already seeing this. Like um, people ask us, you know, what's your defensibility? Well, we've been through a global pandemic. We've been through AI semiconductor shortage. We've been through supply chain issues when it comes to shipping from China. And we're still growing. Mm. So hardware is hard, but it also means that because it's so hard, less people choose that path. So, you know, if you're climbing a mountain, right, there's a path that goes right. It's the easy path. It's, yeah. it's on the map. You know that you can take that path. But if you take that easy path, it will take you an extra 10 days to get to the summit. But there's this other path that not many people have taken. But if you take it, you can get to the summit in two days. Mm-hmm. That's how I think about Alice is that you would have to have a lot of guts to still be sticking to that path. And when you look over your shoulder, there's not 10 other teams behind you. There's actually no one. So we're paving the path. Mm. Whereas if you imagine, there's so many cycles that we've gone through since EF, but like the whole Web3 cycle was yeah, nuts, was right? Quick. <laughs> but you, you see how many founders flooded into that? Yeah. So many people wanted to build the next Web3 thing. It was easy. It's a software thing. Mm. You just need to pull some code from GitHub and build an app. Everyone is doing it. It's so easy. Same now. Everyone wants to get into generative. Then there was NFTs. Everyone to do NFT. Now it's generative AI. When you build software with general purpose tech like this, anyone can do it. So what differentiates you? With something like Alice, it's so difficult that not many people do it. So that was, that's just one thing uh, to, 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 to point about hardware versus software. What keeps you motivated? I guess we're, what we're doing is fucking cool. Like it's, it's, it's industry defining. There is, there is no one doing what we're doing. Sony, Canon, Nikon, Apple, Google, Samsung. We're doing it. I love that. You know, I love being able to, you know, put your name against that and say, we're building something that's pioneering uh, an industry. And so that that's in itself is motivating. That's not to say that there's been periods where I've been like, oof, this is really difficult or um, let's, you know, let's try to pivot or let's try to do something else. I think, again, perspective is really important with these things. Um, I actually used to hate history when I was at school and I, and I, I have a really bad knowledge of history, but... When I'm, as, as I've been getting older, I've been reading more and more history. I've been understanding like these um, perspectives. So interesting, you know. We we're so caught up nowadays in like the day to day, like yeah. the the next video that we need to get out, or this next piece of social media, or like I just missed the train. But actually, think about the perspective, and think about what like all the all these diff- interesting innovations that have happened over time. You just you just need to go spend literally couple of days at the British Library and just read about a bunch of different uh, products and I think that that's that perspective is is helpful Um, and then you know I also have an amazing team 
Like we got kick-ass team from not just Liam and Vic. We've got Ollie, we've got Shelly, we've got Joao, we've got Johnny. Such a nice team. You know, it's, you, you wake up every day and you want to you wanna build this with, with these people and, and more people hopefully in the future. So, you know, all those things is, um, is, is what keeps me going. But a startup is hard. Mm. And I just turned 30. If I was 35 with a mortgage, two kids, a bunch of other things, and then I was thinking of doing this, I would probably make very different decisions. I'd probably do the B2B SaaS thing because who wouldn't, you know? But now is the time to think of something big and ambitious and to go for it um, and to take it a, dis a certain distance. That's amazing. Yeah. And can you mention any like setbacks or failures that's happened? Setbacks? Oh yeah, we, we've been delayed. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been trying to, uh, we penciled in a delivery date. Of, so our first Indiegogo campaign was t February, 2021. Mm -hmm. It's now June, 2023. We did say that we would deliver sort of back end of uh, sort of mid 2022. That got delayed to end of 2022. How was that like communicating that to customers? Did they ask for refunds? Some actually our refund rate is very low. Mm. It comes back to the point that you can't get this anywhere. Yeah. And then the other thing that's important to mention is perspective. Just go and listen to some interviews from the founders of Oculus. Oculus were delay was delayed by three years. Uh, and they sold out to Facebook for, for whatever. So I think that the, what we've had to explain to customers is that when we were coming up with this idea back in the 2019, we weren't expecting a pandemic. We weren't expecting a chip shortage. And we weren't expecting supply chain issues from China. If none of those things had happened, we would be having a very different conversation right now because it would have sped us up like drastically. Yeah. So... Those things, have, those, I would say that's the biggest setback. And that's what frustrates me the most is that there's not really much you can do about it, actually. It's sort of out of your control. Um, it's completely out of your control to the point where you're like, oh. But then you sort of have to get a thick skin and get used to it. And then you then start listening to interviews and start getting all those bits of like <laughs> inspirations from... You, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, get that perspective. Because of that intersection between arts, culture and technology even introducing like the Alice camera as well. Are we diluting the human touch or diluting, say, the piece of authenticity, right? So for example, when I do a piece of art, if like I'm not an artist, but if I was to draw a picture, mm -hmm. I can say it's how I'm feeling inside. Whereas now you have a lot of these generative, generative like AI models where you can type in a few phrases and it can give you an image. Again, if we talk about when you was at Sotheby's and your data science work was put in a pack in order to win more clients. Mm -hmm. Now, that's something where you're making real data in areas where it used to be very subjective mm -hmm. and it used to be feeling towards mm -hmm. something. And that feeling might be good, might be bad, but it's a feeling, something that you can't really put your finger towards. How do we make sure we don't lose that human touch when it comes to bringing together something which is so human with something which is so technical. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point. And um, I think that we... I, I'm optimistic that humans will continue to maintain their culture, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very optimistic about that, actually. And there's a reason why 
Beyonce at Tottenham was sold out. There's a, there's a reason people want to go see that. There's a reason post-pandemic people are traveling. The whole generative AI, blockchain stuff is great. It's, push, it's pushing things forward. But the more and more I've been using the camera, the more and more I've been appreciating being in certain uh, situations to actually capture the photo. Um, there's a reason why people spend tens you know hours listening to podcasts like this um that you know that i think there was a period where short form video was really blowing up and it still is but some people have been sh you know writing about recently how long form is, is getting back into swing the swing of things and people want to spend a bit more time listening to uh, people talking about certain things so I, i'm just optimistic that that we will continue to maintain uh our music culture our art culture our uh, photography, uh, a whole bunch of different you know, crafts and everything like that. I'm really, really optimistic about that, actually. And uh, in the short term, yeah, there's a lot of like noise around generative AI and is it going to replace photographers? No, it's not. Because, you, you, you know, fashion brands still want people to come in and they want to still have models and stuff. They might experiment with it. Like, who didn't experiment with blockchain when it first came out? Mm -hmm. Or Web3. But where is it now, you know? Is Gucci doing a whole Web3 thing? No, they probably just completely sacked the whole idea and now they're doing the generative AI thing and, and that's great. But, you know, I still believe that we're going to try to maintain that. But I, I do, I do, I do, um, I do understand the, not the, I wouldn't say risk, I'd say I understand the hesitation and the threat that some of these tools uh, place and it is threatening actually. And I think we, as humans, feel that like instinctively we're like yeah. oh wow this is like treading on my territory like this is like this is threatening me sort of thing but you learn to you learn to live with it mm -hmm. um and that will lead to new things that we you know we can't think of right now yeah. but i'm mostly i i'm i'm, I'm quite i'm i would say 90 percent optimistic I'm, I'm optimistic about most things and in, in this sort of one in particular i think we'll find a way through yeah i think copywriting is going to be so important as mm -hmm. well um, finding ways because one thing which I just was reading about recently is that if I like your piece of work I can get a copy of it using some AI model looks like it's your work but it's not your work mm -hmm. you won't get paid for that mm -hmm. and it's those small grey areas that we just have to find some type of solution for right? yes um, so in the midst of everything it's like you're quite optimistic is there anything within this space other than your camera that you're really like excited about happening I actually think the the most viral and sticky applications of any emerging technology that's happening, whether it's AI, whether it's blockchain, whether it's crypto, whatever, finance, I think some of the most vibrant applications are in the creative and cultural sector, mm -hmm. in the creator economy. And it's the one that captures everyone's imagination. I like digital art. I like seeing art created using digital tools. And I'm excited about that. I, I just want to see creators do crazy stuff with these tools that's experiential, that's unique, that I can go and, and see, that hopefully large portions of society can go and see. Um, ideally, there will be some funding for this sort of public art that people can go and see. But um, yeah, there was a period where I was really interested in public art, yeah. the ability of like transforming cities into like canvases. And I think because of COVID, that dropped. But I do, I reckon there's going to be a very big renaissance of certain cities around the world, be it London, like to, 
be it the traditional ones like London, Paris, New York, um, or the more emerging ones like Dubai, Singapore, um, and, and other places, I think there's going to be some crazy cool public art initiatives that will really capture people's uh, imagination awesome. and that people will travel to go see. Mm. And I'm excited for stuff like that, really. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Um, so I've got a couple last questions for you. Role models. <laughs> you mentioned that you got some sage words of advice like early in your career. Um, can you pinpoint to any words of advice that like transformed your perception on something? Great question. Um, role models is an interesting one. Like... I think I've drawn a lot of inspiration from uh, just like sports stars. Uh, what I, I remember, I think, okay, so one of my biggest role models is Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. I straight up have to say that. So I was in, um, really upset. I was in Lisbon in 2016 when he passed away. And I was like, damn, like he passed away. And I remember being in the uh, timeout, um, timeout food court thing. And Rolling Stone had a little um, store and there was the Rolling Stone magazine with Muhammad Ali, the famous photo. So I ended up buying it and I got the thing framed. But I don't know, it's just something about him that when you, when you listen, to, when you watch his videos, you listen to his speak. Firstly, no one's ever seen Muhammad Ali with a beard. He's always shaven. Oh, yeah. Always shaven. I love that. I, 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 always, I, always, I always mostly shave. So, but also, it's just the way in which he tackles certain things I found very inspiring. So that was, I used to watch a lot of his stuff when I was growing up. Um, there's no particular phrases that pop to mind um, that stick with me right now. But, oh yeah, actually there is one. Um, what comes quick goes quick. You know, my granddad used to say that quite a lot. What comes quick goes quick. Money comes quick, you're going to spend it. Something, NFTs come, it goes. Mm. What comes quick goes quick. What takes a lot of time, persistence, hard work, will always be there. I like that. I like that. So you have a very busy schedule, and especially what you were explaining before joining EF, like, it sounds mad. Are there any, like, productivity hacks, mm. tips, strategies, tools, anything like that that have really helped you stay on top of everything and organised? Spoke about it a bit before, but 100% meditation. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important for people to be present. A lot of people put too much cognitive load on their mind based on the past. S- decisions, bad decisions they've made or stuff that's happened in family or whatever. That's happened. Then there's other people who put too much cognitive load on the future. What's the future going to be like? Am I going to be all right? Uh, blah, blah, blah. And, f- you know, there could be genuine reasons why you're anxious about the future. Like, I'm not saying for one reason... Y- you might not be anxious or, or, or happy or sad about the future. But when you are building a startup and you need to be making quick decisions and clinical ones, you need to be absolutely present. It's just so important to be, be present. So I would say meditation is, is one of them. Uh, I trust Google for everything. Like in terms of my, my organizations, Google and Apple. So email, calendar, docs, literally Google. Like... They've just got it on point. In terms of notes, like I played around with like Notion and stuff like that. But actually, I really like Apple Notes and I use Apple Notes for pretty much everything. Same, I always default. I back love to Apple, Apple Notes. Yeah. It's just because like I'm so ingrained in the Apple ecosystem when it comes to Macs and phones and yeah. everything else that 
just trust Apple. I wish they did a better job in certain other elements, like, but you know, let's see what they do. Then we use ClickUp internally. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to use Slack, uh, but Slack was too good at being an instant messenger. It was just too good. Mm -hmm. So we needed more structure around different projects, different tasks. So we use ClickUp. Um, and then beyond that, I still, I still sketch. I used to still have a you know, notebook and pencil. I almost, ex I actually exclusively write in pencil. Um, oh, really? Yeah, never. I don't actually own a pen. Mm. Um, people give me a pen. I find it really weird to Why? write. Why is that? I don't know. So do you, in meetings, you take notes on your laptop or do you write? No, no, laptop. laptop. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but if, I, if I'm mm. like, if I need to do some strategic thinking, pencil, pen. Mm. Yeah. I think it's just because when I did art, like I was drawing in pencil the whole time. Yeah. And I used to love drawing and it's just a habit, I think. And to get some of your pieces of art. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then um, last question. Are there any books that you'd recommend? For better or for worse, I would definitely read The Prince by Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. um, very dark, but interesting book. Why? Why? I bought it, but I never read it. So The Prince is, what's the phrase from The Prince? It's, I um, can't remember, but The Prince is great because it, it's written for one of the Medici kings uh, or, or like the, one of the Medici um, rulers and yeah, it's got some quite questionable things in there, like, um, you know, be a leader that's, uh, I don't agree with everything, you know, it's one of the phrases like, it's always better to be a leader that's feared than loved, yeah. and a bunch of other things. Um, but I just think it's a very good book to, it's very small, it's very short, actually, I think it's like 70 pages. Um, and yeah, I think it has, it has a lot of good structures, a lot of things to think about in leadership situations you know the world is not a nice place yeah. um there are always going to be people out there that want to you know knock you off your feet and you've got to be thinking about things in a political way uh sometimes you need to show up with a smile on your face even though um you don't like the person yeah. sometimes you still need to have the conversation with the person you can't just ignore them the whole time so i think there's a good life lessons in there uh there's another really good one called the richest man in babylon mm -hmm. I forget who the author is, but I remember that being a really good book in terms of understanding finance um, and understanding like not to spend more than what you have and uh, being frugal and uh, spending money if you need to get a return on it. You know, it's good to spend money on a MacBook if you're going to leverage that to get a return. So that's a really good one. Good, brilliant. Well, yeah. Vish, thank you so much. Where can people find you? You know, stuff like that. Some of your Personally, uh, if you just do vishalkumar.london, you'll find me. Um, if you want to know more about the Alice camera, then it's just alice.camera. And that's it. Thanks for having me. It was a real, real pleasure to catch up. And, Amazing. And, yeah. Thanks so much. Cheers, mate.